the one thing that the creatives have that the nine to fivers don't is the hustle, desperation to keep going. Hey there, career changers. Welcome to the Career Therapy Podcast. My name is Martin McGovern, your host for the episode. And with us, we have Juliet Barrett. Um, she is a, another coach who I have had the pleasure of knowing for quite some time. Uh, back, We met back when I gave a talk uh, to her creative students and uh, talked about internships and a bunch of other things. And Juliet, the way I kick these things off is by reading off the title you put on your LinkedIn profile. So that. yours is nice and simple. <laughs> nice and simple. Great. You are a creative career coach. And so we'll kick this off as we always do with the most infamous interview question of all time. Juliet, tell us about yourself. <laughs> Lights go down. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, I am a creative career coach. Uh, I am also an independent maker, thinker. I like to say I'm an incubatrice of ideas. Ooh, I like it. Yeah, that's kind of my, uh, my avant-garde self-title because I'm not a fan of listing all the many things that I do. Um, and really, uh, the generation of ideas kind of sums up the totality of my my focus as a creative person, um, whether that's having conversations like this, whether it's um, you know starting a new creative project personally, or whether that's helping other folks overcome their creative blocks with ideas about how they might be able to better strategize and be efficient with their time. Um, that's that's what I do. I do a I lot of things, but that's the intention and the purpose behind all of them. Yeah. And you and I definitely have a shared, a very deep shared interest in helping creative people overcome mo overcome mental blocks. Absolutely. I find that to be such a fascinating area and something that we quickly bonded over when we first met. Um, but tell me how you got into this creative coaching space. I think yeah. everyone's journey to becoming a coach is so interesting because it's not it's not the typical thing that you would think graduating high school, this is what I'm going to no. go into. So how did you end up in this space? Yeah, I... Um, I I wanted to help people, um, but I didn't know how. And I had a friend who needed help and I had a lot of experience in admin. So my, my traditional career in academics um, is based in theater, but I also have experience in television broadcasting. I worked with PBS for a long time. I also did broadcasting in radio and independent radio, ran my own um, radio show, kind of this American lifestyle for cool. a while. Uh, then I was a, muralist for a couple of years and I taught and freelance taught um, independent classes for children and retirees um, while I was also painting uh, murals on my own, be it commission pieces or public pieces um, out, you know, out on the streets. Uh, so I came from a really um, multifaceted background. Uh, but while I was pursuing the um, those different uh, outlets. I was also working heavily in administrative roles. And so by the time I came to Chicago, I had a lot of experience in the office and on the ground as, as you know, as they say. Um, and so I was having coffee with a friend and she is, was, was, she still is an independent musician. And she was having a lot of tr a trouble with time efficiency and with project management. And um, she thought that she needed a, an administrative assistant. And at the time I was looking to expand, I was really new to Chicago and I was looking to expand my social and professional networks. And I also just really wanted to help um, and so, and part of my kind of, um, intention behind my philosophy behind coaching is that you already have the tools that you need. Um, so there's no, there, you don't have to add anything or learn anything new in order to be able to be successful as you are. Um, it's just about being more organized or, or understanding how to articulate who you are um, and moving on from there. And so I offered my time to her and I honestly just said, you know, however you need help, I probably have the skill to help you. So let's figure out what you need. And that 
led to two years of a relationship um, where it evolved from talking a lot about her anxiety and how her anxiety was um, stopping her from emailing. Uh, that led into imposter syndrome and talking about imposter syndrome um, that was really stopping a lot of her project management. So we didn't really get into the admin side of things until about six months into our relationship. Prior to that, it was just a lot of life coaching. Um, and that's why I say I'm a creative coach because I practice a holistic combination of creative um, of creative approach to careers through life coaching because a lot of times folks will get focused on the output and that oftentimes is the career-centered element of their work. But then they don't think about the elements that they need to work on prior to getting to the career. They're actually going to help them be able to create that output in a healthy and sustainable way. So we did a lot of building. And through that relationship, um, she's actually the first person who called me a life coach. She, we, were, we were working together and, and people were finding out about it. She was talking about the work we were doing together. Folks were asking me, like, hey, I hear you're working with Misha. She's really excited about um, what you're doing. And um, and she started calling me a life coach. And at first, I was really adverse to it because I felt like it gave me way too much power. And I was like, I am not a therapist. I'm not here to. Um, I'm not trying to tell anybody how to live. And that's what life coaching at the time meant. Like that was kind of the reputation it had mm -hmm. for me. Um, and but at the same time, I also believe in if somebody feels away. I can't argue with how she felt, right? So if she felt like I was a life coach, I wasn't going to say, no, you're wrong, um, even if it did make me uncomfortable. So it really made me sit down and think about what am I doing here? What are we doing here? And is this a future that I want to continue pursuing? And so from there, I started taking informational interviews with coaches, um, both pro uh, professional career coaches and life coaches. I had a couple within my network already who I just kind of had some informational phone calls about, about what their philosophy was, what kind of training they had, um, what their uh, ideas of what the work could and should look like. Um, and then I began intentionally shaping my relationship with my friend Nietzsche and started thinking about, okay, well, if I'm going to be intentional about this and I'm really going to take ownership of this word, then I need to make sure that I have a plan, right? Um, so it, it honestly came out really organically. Um, and then from there, I, I started taking on more clients pro bono for several years as I was learning more and practicing um, some of my own um, exercises and strategies and really just kind of beta testing uh, what worked for me, what was my style, what kind of folks was I attracting, what kind of help did they consistently need, how could I meet those needs. And then I ended up in higher academia, which is where we met. And um, that's kind of where the career coaching took a heavier um, a heavier part of my time um, and investment as I started learning more about how I could take my life coaching and apply it to specific industries to help folks on the back or on the front end of career coaching, right? So kind of built the the life coaching balance basis, um, the intention, the philosophy. And then I really started looking at, okay, well now how do we start measuring output? How do we start building strategy? And how can I learn and understand how to speak multiple languages and order to be able to diversify the clients that I want to work with. I love that. There's so much in there that I resonate with. And I think I think it's going to be so interesting to dig into a few of these topics because I think career coaching is still a bit of a mystery to a lot of people. Oh, hugely. Um, <laughs> I, I did two live coaching sessions on LinkedIn during my live streams. And I got so many people just being like, oh my gosh, that's what it is. And to be honest, I didn't know what it was when I got into it either. And, and I think um, it's so interesting how someone else gave you the label before you were able to take it on yourself. Mm -hmm. And I had a very similar experience. I was doing, um, I come from the world of marketing and I was doing personal brand coaching. That's what my buddy and I called it. And so we were sitting down with people doing their pitches, doing their um, online presence, helping them with their blogs, all sorts of different stuff. And then I met someone at the Muse and got put on the website as a career coach. And I was like, 
Oh, career coach. I'm a marketer. I, I deal in like concrete pieces yeah. of, of like skill building and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah. I don't know about this career coaching name. And it took me years to like really get comfortable with it of like, because I was doing it part time as I was running my business. And then as it got bigger and bigger, I sort of had to face it in the in the eye and just be like, yeah. all right, what is this thing that I'm being called here? And uh Last year, someone called me a life coach, uh, put me on a website as a, as a life coach while I was consulting with their students. And I was like, all right, a new term <laughs> I have to come to terms with. Oh, my goodness. Like yeah. the, these terms, they do feel they come with a lot of um, sometimes they come with a lot of baggage and, and a lot yeah. of misunderstanding. And so Absolutely. I'm kind of curious, what, what was something that surprised you about being a coach that maybe before you even knew this was a potential career path, like you had some misconceptions on? Hmm. I think I had, I had the misconception that being a, a coach meant that I had to have answers. Mm. <laughs> I think that was where the pressure came from was thinking that I had to be a person who was an expert on everything on life <laughs> that I yeah. had to be the person where if someone was like, how do I do this? And they came to me that they were paying my hourly rate so that I could give them the right answer on how yeah. to fix their problems, which is the opposite. Exactly. Um, but oftentimes that was, uh, that's what's, you know, that's what's put forth in media, um, executive coaching. You know, whenever you see any sort of television show where you've got a CEO who's kind of got their, um, you know, $600 or $600 an hour coach who is just really there to tell them whatever they want to hear and yeah. feel better about themselves. That was kind of the idea that I had in my mind was someone who's kind of an enabler, somebody who pretends to have all the answers. And logically I was like, that's impossible. So why, you know, this, this concept of this job um, at the time, I honestly didn't think, I thought it was more around someone who had an inflated ego, who thought that they had lived enough life to be able to have all the answers to make other people pay them money to find out. Yeah, <laughs> it's such a fun <laughs> summation. I, I think it's, and it's so true because I think a lot of it is asking better questions. It's not having answers. It's asking better questions. And I think what I'm finding um, or what I found out really early on, um, probably around when I was 23 and I was just doing personal brand coaching. So like I wasn't helping anyone's life, I thought, in any way, shape or form. No. And uh, someone came to me and was like, um, I'm I actually I came here thinking I needed a personal brand, but really, I don't know how to make friends. Yeah. And I was like, uh okay <laughs> and and they're like but i i like what i mean by that is i don't know how to like introduce myself and that's why the personal brand thing stands out to me i was like all right and then like we started putting together a plan for how this person could like set up their life in a way in which they could create serendipity in a way right because yeah. right now they were just staying at home not interacting with anyone yep. so how do you network where do you network what do you talk about and what i like to co call networking now is nerding out instead of networking like leaning into that. what what nerdy things you enjoy and trying Absolutely. to bond with people about it because yes. that way you're not just focused on a job outcome or something no. like that or on the connection mm -hmm. there's so much pressure when networking folks think that they um, even if there's a person you're really excited to talk to, all the pressure of like, oh, I want to connect with this person. You come into that interaction with all of that anxiety, all that churning energy. And even if you might have a lot in common, oftentimes that first impression is going to work against you and building that relationship because you're looking at how can they serve me? How can I make this connection instead of like, how can I um, how can I share something that I'm interested in? I think yeah. a lot of times folks are like, what can I get and not what can I give? That's amazing. Yeah. And, and I, I, I very much work on that exact same basis of like, stop making it about you yeah. while you're going out there. Mm -hmm. and, I, and the more we focus on other people's problems, the less we have to struggle with something like imposter syndrome, right? Imposter syndrome is exactly what you and I kind of felt early on in our coaching world. It's like, well, I don't know everything. How could I possibly advise someone? And then I find myself advising someone who's, you know, twice my age. And I'm like, how, mm -hmm. how is this conversation happening right now? Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and that's that. <laughs> mind blowing, right? It's like, well, yeah. how, 
what is going on? Like, how are we able to have this and have it work and have it have results and all those great things? And so I'm kind of curious when it comes to the imposter syndrome, I always feel like shifting it out off of ourselves to the things other people are struggling with. Because even something that, that technically another person could do on their own, like technically all of us could come up with our own elevator pitch based off the resources online. But for some reason, it's just hard to get out of our own head and see ourselves objectively. And that's one of the big things is like having someone who will listen, interpret, and then be honest with you about what they're hearing rather than like a friend or family member who wants to, you know, not say the wrong thing or something like that. Yeah. And so I'm kind of curious when you've come across imposter syndrome, what has that looked like? Hmm. Uh, so I, one of the reasons I say I'm a creative coach is because I talking about personal branding, I like to attract artists because I'm a multi-dimensional, multifaceted artist. And those are the people that I often share many languages with. Um, and so I found that that is, tends to be my most successful clientele. Um, they're the people that I am able to communicate most efficiently with. They're the people who I can understand a little bit more intuitively. And um, I have a lot of experience in many industries. So oftentimes there's some sort of ref point of reference that we can connect on that I've also experienced. Mm. Um, imposter syndrome in the arts is everywhere. Everyone is like, oh, am I allowed to be an artist? You know, am I am I allowed to take up this space? Why does my story matter? I think that's that's the the huge point around um, a lot of artists is the world is, doesn't need another Beyonce, right? But what if I'm just as powerful as Beyonce? Uh, does that mean that, you know, my power doesn't matter because we've already got that whole filled, you know, so move on to the next type of person. Or um, God forbid Beyonce had said that when she was younger right. and then we would never have had a Beyonce. Can you imagine? <laughs> Literally, what a tragedy that would be. Um, and so I think a lot of times the imposter syndrome for me is, uh, I try to help folks um, navigate understanding um, what's unique about their story rather than trying to fill the gaps of what they think the world wants, right? Mm. So they're like, oh, well, you know, right now we have Instagram is saturated with a lot of um, influencers in the like LA style photography, you know, with like the super concentrated uh, colors and the very like art pop kind of vibe and the tropical lighting. And because I'm seeing a lot of that, I'm not going to do that thing. I'm going to run away from that thing and I'm going to do something totally different. Um, and so I see a lot of folks being more reactive in their process uh, and actually doing what they want. And mm -hmm. so even though they're trying to run away from, from the culture in order to try and separate themselves and, dis and create distinction, um, they actually end up hurting themselves because maybe they would be really excellent on what's trend right now. And because they're so focused on saying, well, I need to be different. I need to be, you know, I need to have a selling point. I need to have a unique brand. Um, they don't actually sit with, well, maybe this is actually playing to your strengths and now is your time to shine and lean in deeper to what's popular instead of running away from it. But because you're so consumed with being different because you think that what you have to offer isn't enough already, you end up denying what's inherently there. Um, and so I kind of start there with folks is asking, you know, let's not focus on the future. Let's just focus on what have you got going right now that you're proud of? Like, I don't want to talk about the future. I don't want to talk about your past. I want to say right now, if you sat down and you said, these are the six things I'm proud of, um, let's start there instead of trying to, you know, get you to grow into something new and better. Let's acknowledge that you're already enough. Um, and through that, we're going to find some really interesting parts of you that we can begin highlighting and teasing out. But if you're not connected to that and you're not seeing the value in who you are, nobody else is going to. I love that. It's just that ability to stop and say, you're already doing things that are good, mm -hmm. but you're not giving yourself credit. Absolutely. That's that is so huge. That's, I mean, I think that's, that's always the beginning. That's the beginning for me with all of my sessions. I love that. And this idea of like being reactive 
and proactive. Mm. I see that in the job search so much. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that I call out with folks. I actually have like a whole like, here's what a reactive job search looks like. And here's what a proactive job search looks like. Mm. A reactive one is one where you sign up to 20 different job boards. You put on notifications and you wait for them to send you jobs. And then every morning you wake up with an overburdened inbox and you spend the whole day searching through, hoping that there's something in there that's worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And that's being reactive. That's allowing LinkedIn to make the decisions for you and then only apply to the jobs that are most competitive because literally it's being sent to everyone. Really? An act, a proactive job search is where you say, this is the role I want. This is the thing I'm going after. This is the industry and the type of like title industry and Let's just break it down by title, industry, and location. And I'm going to go talk to people with that title in that industry, in this location, and learn everything I can about it. And eventually, if I talk to enough people, something will happen. Mm -hmm. So I I love that perspective that you're bringing here of saying, like, we got to stop being so reactive with everything that we do. And we got to start thinking more about the things, the actions that we're taking rather than looking at just everything. Because it is kind of like a toothpaste style, right? Mm. there's just so many options like how do you compare like eight different features and eight different bottles like just many things yeah and you don't need to compete with them too you know like no one that's the other thing no one's complaining that there are that many options of toothpaste right (laughs) so it's okay if you want to be a pop singer like it's fine there are there's a new pop singer every year go be one no one you know i don't not everything has to be a problem How did you figure out, like, I mean, obviously you were probably very creative as a kid, I would assume, but like, where was it that you thought, you know, so many people are discouraged so early on from pursuing these types of things. Um, Where, what, what was it like growing up with such a creative sort of spirit and figuring out how to turn that into something that you could, you know, build businesses around and help people with and things like that? Um, I mean, it did really start with people telling me I was good at things. Um, Art honestly got me a lot of attention. And as a kid, you know, when you're getting attention from adults, you move closer to that thing so that you can show off a little bit. And I, as an extrovert, uh, maximized on that uh, as a a kid growing up and really leaned into how can I get more of this? How can I get more of this attention? Um, And I had a couple of natural skills. So it's really funny. I personally uh, identify as a performer. Uh, first and foremost, artistically. Um, but if you would if you would argue what I'm most innately skilled at, it's at painting. Hmm. Um, and so as a young kid, I got uh, a lot of attention for being able to draw anything from a very early age um, because that's a skill that a lot of people can't connect to. And it, oftentimes it's one of those weird skills, kind of like singing, um, where if, if you can do it from a young age, it's, it's not a learned behavior. There's something mm. innate about it. This idea of talent, right, um, that we, we really idolize in our society for artists. And so um, I grew up thinking that I was supposed to be a painter because that was the thing that everybody liked the most about me. And so I went closer to that. I started... Um, because I'm industrial and I needed money and it was kind of one of these things of like, well, if I'm going to have this skill and people are going to give me attention. Like, so I like entered coloring contests. That was a big thing as a kid. So that got me the comp- the competitive edge got me really excited. Uh, this idea of, of winning at this, this intangible skill was really exciting. And then from there, um, once I got into high school, I realized, Oh, I need some extra cash. If I want to do the things that I want to do, how can I do this? Um, I started entering festivals, so like crafts and arts, arts craft festivals. I um, set up booths in the summertime on my off time. And then that led to muraling around town. So I basically painted all of the local elementary school murals for my school district. Um, I was like the go-to you know, so-and-so's got the hookup. She did the Dr. Seuss mural over there. Maybe she can do one over here. Because I was a copycat. I could literally... I love it. You know, they gave me a picture out of a Dr. Seuss book and they were like, can you do this? And I was like, yeah, I can. And then like, I... Like, I'm going to green eggs and ham this yeah. entire wall. 
And um, that's how I made my bread and butter throughout high school. And by the time I got done, I was really glad that I uh, that I really applied myself because I realized that I didn't want to do it. Mm. <laughs> um, it's kind of like I gave myself my own internship. I really, really tried and I did the thing and I found out this isn't sustainable for me. This isn't um, creative in the way that I, my spirit needs to be creative. This is a skill and I'm lucky that it's a really good skill that I have. That's something that I can fall back on if I need to or informs my personal expression, but it's not something that I want to develop beyond what I've already put the time into developing on my what own. What was it missing? Um, human connection. Painting is really, really uh, lonely. Uh, and I'm an extrovert. And so spending hours painting a wall by myself and listening to playlists was not going to work for me. <laughs> I am not a studio artist. I'm not a person who wants to burrow down in a room for five days by myself and crank out a bunch of paintings. That's not who I am. Um, and I think understanding that was also something that was key for me in working with other creatives is saying, just because you have a skill doesn't mean that that has to be the way you make money or mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that that's the thing you have to be because everybody else wants you to be that thing. So when I decided to go into theater, I had a lot of people who were like, but you should go to fine arts school. You should be a painter. You're so incredible. You're amazing. Um, and I really had to kind of work hard to defend my choices. Um, and also it was something that honestly has a little bit more social clout. There's this idea of the fine arts, of painting, of history, um, of, you know, being remembered for your work, of uh, being uh, having collectors who, you know, want to own your work for in their in their families in a way that theater just does not carry that same kind of excitement for a lot yeah. of people. Um, and so it was a that I think that was the first step in starting to own my creative process over the identity that people were projecting onto me. That's amazing to hear. It's so funny because uh, my partner is a painter and a muralist and she's definitely more on the introverted side than your extroverted side. And I think it's so interesting to watch how different people work in these spaces, right? Because um, for her, putting on, I don't know, a Brene Brown book and listening to it 13 times straight while while painting is like the best thing in the world. And yeah. I went to <laughs> a, a panel talk that she was on and and a lot of the painters up there said the same thing. Like one of them, was just saying she puts one song on and listens to it on repeat for like 40 hours while she paints oh, no. a single painting, <laughs> one song. And she's like, and that song becomes that painting. And like, I, I listened to that and I'm like, oh, yeah, it's just a totally different, even like this, there's, there's two sides to a career, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's the skill set and the temperament in a way. And I feel like a lot of folks are like, Oh, I want to be a, I want to be a VP of a company. And it's like, okay, but do you realize that being a VP is more about politics and dealing with people than it is about, you know, marketing or whatever it is that you're doing? Because you're not doing the marketing, you're managing the team of marketers. Mm -hmm. And and when you think about like um, uh, something like coaching, right? Mm -hmm. Coaching is a lot of one-on-one -on -one interaction. And a lot of folks are like, well, I you know, I love talking to people and that's a great thing to want to have to be in this role. But then you also have to be really good at dealing with emotions and things like that. Um, or if you want to get into marketing, like like I did early on in my career, mm -hmm. you have to be really good at admin work. Like, I, I'm kind of curious, like, there's almost like a hidden job behind every job. Have you Absolutely. sort of seen that in the folks you've coached and what sort of things have you noticed? Oh, so much. Um so I work with a lot of musicians. I work with a lot of actors, um, a lot of folks in television, uh, a lot of folks in theater, um, a lot of people who have to kind of work independently as a business in order to be successful in their mm -hmm. industry. Um, because there's not a, um, a direct ladder that they're able to climb or the ladder that they're supposed to climb for that specific industry requires them to understand branding, to understand networking, to understand how to apply to a label that actually asks them to be a business before they're an artist in order to get into the rooms they need to be in to share their work. And so a lot of times um, what I found with them specifically um, 
and I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. What was the original question? I don't want to, I don't want to get off. Um, I was wondering about like the additional skills that folks would need. Yeah. Like the ones that you don't think about, you think, Oh, I want to be a singer. Cause I get to sing every day. And I remember being in a band when I was in uh, college and high school, a ska mm-hmm. band, because you know, I'm the nerdiest and, uh, trombone or were you oh i was the singer and uh lyricist yeah (laughs) the stage fright i had back then was unparalleled but um it it was one of those things where i realized pretty quickly like there's a lifestyle well and and maybe it's the tasks but it's also the lifestyle right Mm -hmm. so you were talking about how um you know being isolated alone painting for 20 hours straight is not exactly what you want to be doing and i recall having a conversation with our uh, saxophone players <laughs> if if people don't know what ska music is it's like no doubt from the 90s and uh punk with horns but um basically we were sitting there and, and he's like so we're going to tour and we're going to live in a van basically mm-hmm. and i was like i already have a job and an apartment <laughs> I don't think this is going to happen. Like as fun as it is to get up on stage, I had to find another outlet for that, which is now, you know, 10 years, gosh, 20 years, I'm old, but uh, it's like, now it's like, Oh, I'm still pursuing that interest, but in a totally different facet, you know, being able to get in front of a room of students at a, at a university or something like that. And so there's, (laughs) what is it? There's still a performer in you. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, we're doing a podcast and like, and these kinds of things. And I think it's so interesting to find not so much the what, but like, Mm -hmm. obviously the why is the cliche, but like the, the motivations behind the things that we've done, because you had that artist kind of output, right. And people gave you a lot of attention for that, but what was the motivation behind it? And that's, I think you're using the same, maybe similar motivations in other areas. Um, but it's, it's allowing you to tap into other parts of yourself, parts that are, you know, the ones that need to be fed. Well, I mean, when I'm working with, with so many of my clients, the two things that they don't realize they have to do is event planning (laughs) and they don't realize that they have to do PR. Mm -hmm. the two major ones. Um, event planning, you have to understand how to produce your work. You have to understand how to juggle folks' schedules. You have to understand how to book studio time. You have to understand how to do invoices. Um, there's a large element of production that goes into um, just being able to produce that record, right? Or being able to throw the fundraiser for the theater company that you've started, right? That it's not just about being in the room, making the work, but it's also about, okay, well, now you have a donor's board. And if you're going to manage those folks' time and and finances um, responsibly, then what do you need? Well, you need a fundraiser. If you don't understand how to put a fundraiser together, um, you've got these two very large responsibilities that now suddenly have no... um, no way to actually succeed because you haven't thought through, okay, well, this is going to take, um, this is going to take community. A lot of times people do not realize that in order to make work, you have to have community. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot of times why they don't like PR. They're not bonding with their, a lot of times I'll talk and I'll be like, well, who's your audience? Like, who are the people, if you're a musician, who are you writing this album for? Do you even know who's listening to your music? And if they're not tuned in to who their audience is, then I'm like, well, then how are you going to know what bars you're going to need to book or what kinds of venues you're going to need to book for your tour? You feel the pressure of needing to go on a tour, but if you don't even know who's listening to your music, you might spend all of your time booking bars and being really unsuccessful when really you should be doing house shows because house shows are really intimate and you're not a person who likes a lot of attention. And so maybe that environment is going to better serve you than getting up on a stage um, and having to have the pressure of the lights and the fog machine to entertain if that's not who your style is, or maybe that's not who your audience is. If, if you don't want that, chances are your audience doesn't want it either. So stop trying to appeal to conventions as a measure of success. I love that. I love that so much because it's bringing me back to a, a show like early on when we were trying to book these shows, we were uh, playing with a lot of metal bands because mm-hmm. Scott was dead at the time. Well, and so trying to find a ska show was so hard. Yeah. And, and so we actually had to write, uh, we called it um, the like slam dance or something like that, where it was just like, 
our one death metal song that was like 10 seconds long. <laughs> it was just like, just to like open the show and, be, and kind of yeah. poke fun at the, the, the situation. Yeah. But that's so true. It's so true. And it's like, you, you, you meet people and w when they're early on in their careers, when they're early on in these, um, in, in putting these pieces together, you sort of have this naivete, right? You're, you, you know what you're good at to a degree. You kind of know what you want. You're fairly early on in your career and you're like, well, I just want to do this thing that I enjoy for me. And it's like, that's great. But if you want anyone to pay for it, at some point you have to know what they want, what they care about. And, you know, we talked about, we were talking about at the beginning. It's like, if you're trying to get a job and all you're talking about is the part of the job you enjoy doing, you're already shooting yourself in the foot because you haven't connected it to the problem that this person has or the benefit that it brings them. And so what I'm, what I'm so curious about, it's like, um, how do we get people to start thinking about um, thinking beyond just like, Oh, I do this thing and everything you're saying for the art world applies for other careers as well. Right? So if I'm talking to someone, they're like, I'm a UX designer. I do UX design. I go, great. What problems does that solve? Their answer is always, I don't know. I uh, who someone hires me to do UX and I do their UX. They tell me what to do. I go, they don't tell you what to do. They tell you what problems they have, and you got to go find solutions. Mm -hmm. And that, um, and they forget that, like, okay, I'm a, I'm a data science person and I'm an introvert. My job, I chose the data science career so I wouldn't have to be social, right? I just want to sit at my computer. I want to go through data. I don't, don't want to. Yep. Yeah. And then I go, okay, but do you not realize that part of your career is finding that job and finding that job requires learning how to network and learning how to network requires talking to people. Yeah. And that, that doesn't seem to get explained when pe early on when people are thinking about how to build longevity in their career. Yeah, I really think it's empathy. <laughs> If you don't know how to empathize with someone, then you're automatically not going to understand how to um, to think from their perspective. Um, and so then ultimately, all of your conversations are going to be taking turns. It's not going to be an exchange. It's just going to be, okay, you're done talking. Now it's my turn. Um and that's not going to be successful because you're both going to walk away from that. I think that's oftentimes what networking feels like is folks are like, well, let me give you my resume. I'll find out about where you work and what you do. And you're going to get, and you're going to do vice versa. And then we're going to walk away and we're going to say, well, that person's not interesting. I'm going to leave that there. Right. Mm -hmm. Because both of them were not coming in to listen and neither of them were coming in to understand the other person's perspective. They were just coming in to say, I'm important and here's why. Yeah, uh, or even worse, they go, "Hi, I'm looking for a job." Oh, can you give? Okay, can you give me a job? Yeah. No, but the website's over there. I'm not. Yeah. A, I don't. And it's like okay, so the entire interaction is just asking for a job. Like I could ask a wall for a job. The wall doesn't have one. Mm -hmm. Like I, I don't. I don't understand where we're start. Why are we starting in this? Yeah. Like this, and I think it is fear. I think it is maybe even. It, it's all the things that happen before we even get to empathy, right? Like you need to feel comfortable to be able to like really dig into your, your empathy side. Whereas if you feel on, if you feel like you're defensive and afraid, it's yeah. hard to start getting out of your own head and, and like putting yourselves in other people's shoes. Um, have you seen anything that, that helps people kind of calm down in these situations and maybe create sort of a, an environment where empathy can, can grow from? Um, I often, I, so I, uh, several of my philosophies are, you know, start with where you're, with what you're curious. So networking, I think the most successful networking is not in networking spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, like you had just said, nerd out. I totally agree with that. Go to a place to network that is not intended for networking. Yes. It's like my number one rule. Um, because, you're probably going because you ha already have something in common, right? And the thing that you have in common is not your desperation <laughs> um, or your need to be approved by somebody, right? Um, it's hopefully an interest or a skill or a talent or a curiosity that you have about wanting to learn something. I oftentimes think the best networking happens in spaces where you can be vulnerable, which means putting yourself in spaces where nobody is good at anything. I love classes. I love saying, okay, go take a class in a thing 
that is completely new to you, uh, take the beginner's course, go do an improv class, right? Nobody is good at improv when you start. You, nobody needs to understand improv, right? But it's a great way for you to practice talking to, to new people, finding commonality when maybe you don't have anything except the fact that you're in that class together. Um, learning how to think on your feet um, and, and being willing. I think one of the wonderful things about improv that I love um, is one of the biggest rule, the first rule of improv is yes and. So you always affirm and you move forward, which mm -hmm. is what is like, right? You're not just saying, thank you so much for uh, this meeting. I had a great time. You're saying, thank you so much for this meeting. I learned so much about your company. And I would love to understand a little bit more about X, Y, and Z event that you were talking about. Let me know when would be a good time for us to follow up and talk about that once you've accomplished this thing or you've hosted this event. Let's keep the conversation going, right? It's a yes and. It's an acknowledging that this happened and we had a great conversation and I want more and this is how I want more. Um, and I think that in networking, uh, the best way to get over yourself is for it to not be about you. Mm -hmm. right? um, so taking that, that, that pressure off of yourself inherently allows you to be vulnerable to the experience and hopefully to like, uh, bond with somebody around your mutual discomfort. <laughs> Misery loves company. company it really does. You know? It really does. I, I love everything you're saying. Cause so often I, I talk to folks, um, and they say, I went to a networking event this week and I go, finally, all right, great. You're doing it. And they're like, but I'm never going back because everyone there was a job seeker. And I go, yeah. Cause you went to a job seeking networking event. Like what? Yeah. I'm like, and so I, I say to these folks, I go, all right, how about next week we go to an event where the people that hire people like you go? Because they're not going to the entry level UX, like learn about UX event. No. That's not what they're headed to. What they're headed to is the how to make revenue for your business. Sorry. Did I lose you? No, I'm still here. I think I accidentally took my cam out. Oh, no worries. No worries. Uh, I had some uh, some real technical issues on yesterday. So we got cut off three times. So I was got real scared. Um, but yeah, so I'm talking to them and I'm like, go to the events that the people who would hire you go to the how to make money, how to manage a team, how to like be the only UX person in the room, be the only, you know, designer in the room, be the only whatever in the room. If I if I want to go to a an event to find clients, I'm not going to a career coaching event on how to be a coach. That would just be me talking to a bunch of me's and none of us are going to hire each other because we already know how to do this stuff. I'm going to go to the event on, um, you know, whether it's whether it's a boot camp event about how to, uh, you know, change industries and or whether it's like, you know, a, a, some sort of university event, all these different things that are out there. And so I, I love what you're saying there. And I also love what you said about improv because I've done that. And it's so fun. It's so wonderful it's challenging. And, <laughs> and super challenging. And it's completely changed the way that I um, give talks and network and stuff. So I, I, I believe in it so thoroughly as like a great way to build skills. Although I'm sure real improv people get quite annoyed by that, but you know, it, it is what it is. That's why we start with the beginner class. Yeah, everyone's there. Everyone's bad. Everyone's new. You're not offending anybody by being inexperienced. Exactly. And um, so I'm, I just want to reiterate, like network at the non-networking places mm -hmm. and follow that nerding out piece of yourself. And yeah. and one of the big questions that I wanted to ask you um, in our time together is what do you think like traditional professional industries like, you know, uh, the, the normal corporate folks, the nine to fivers, all the, whatever you want to call them, what do you think they could learn from the creative world? Mm. Because there's so much in the entertainment space and the way that they like I love to look at comedians and how they build their careers and their audiences and their podcasts and everything like that. I love taking cues from these people that are figuring out how to how to do this small thing at a huge scale. And I, I take some of those learnings and apply them in other ways. I'm curious if you've noticed anything in the creative world that you think, you know, it would be great. It would be so great outside of improv and yes, and, yes, and that, um, you know, someone who's a little bit more nine to fiver mm -hmm. could start incorporating? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, 
Well, I think following your curiosity and trying to make connections between things that seem opposite. So if you're a UX designer, but you really love tattoos, right? Mm -hmm. You're a person who is really invested in getting tattoos. And you think that those things don't have anything in common, right? That you compartmentalize those things, that, um, that your tattoos are personal and that your job is professional, right? And that you um, maybe even hide your tattoos because you don't think that they're relevant to the position that you're working in. When in reality, if you acknowledge both of these parts of you as equally important and relevant to one another, you could find yourself moving towards a really holistic experience of who you are as a person. Maybe you start working, um, you know, with clients who are starting tattoo shops and are looking for apps for how to help um, folks project potential tattoos onto their body, right? Maybe you end up developing technology with the skill that you have with the community that you value and that becomes your future. But until you start allowing and you make the space for that to be possible and you acknowledge the fact that that has value and that you could be the person to bring that value and that skill to the world, it's not going to happen. And so I think um, for folks who, who, who resent the nine to five work, I say, okay, well, your challenge is find something that you love that has nothing to do with your job and find a way for them to work together. I love that so much. What I just wrote down is don't hide your tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> that is like the best advice ever. Um, there's so much that I think can be learned from that just simple phrase of like, yeah, the more I, I was working with someone and he was a professional poker player for four years mm. and he didn't want to talk about it. So his resume just had a four year gap and he never brought it up in interviews and he wouldn't he would never talk about it. Mm. And I was like, what's worse? Because he thought that people would look at him and be like, well, you're you're kind of a skeezy person because that's what you've been doing for four years. Yeah. And, and he's like and I'm like, what's worse? Being a person who figured out somehow to make a living playing poker which is super interesting and there's movies made about it every year yeah or the person who's been missing for four years like who's a man <laughs> of mystery like who is like so what have you been doing over the last few years and you're just like i don't know mr bond it's like what is it? what are we talking about here so like and and the best possible thing would be for that person to get to an interview and have four-year professional poker player and the person they're talking to every every other weekend does poker with their buddies and yeah. is like oh my god tell me everything and they spend Absolutely. half the interview talking about poker and not even about the work yeah um and i can give the personal story about this i uh so back when i was in that ska band i had it on my resume <laughs> and every single interview i went on they asked me about the unfortunate name of the band was called the slam daddies i do not like the name <laughs> i changed the name I changed it to one line short later on, but when I joined them, didn't have a choice. <laughs> it was already set in stone. I hate it now. It was bad then, um, but it was on my resume. And so every time I'd sit down, and they'd be like, "So what's this Slam Daddies thing?" And it's like a old like uh, reggae ska name that's from way back when. But I just every single interview, I would talk about that, and it relates to the job because I can give a presentation well, I can write, I can do X, Y, and Z things. So these these outside interests tie in mm -hmm. to the thing we're doing. And the big piece there is like I had another interview where my hand was broken. I had a big cast on my hand from an unfortunate skiing accident, and I know nothing about skiing. But when I went to shake the person's hand, they were like, "The hell happened here?" And I was like, "Oh, I forgot I broke my hand." And he's like. I love skiing. And he just talked about skiing for like 10, 15 minutes in the interview. And uh, that ended up being the best interview. I got that job. And like, I still keep in touch with that person, even though I never worked for them directly. So, so like these weird things mm -hmm. that you don't think about end up becoming huge differentiators in the job search, huge yeah. things that make you memorable. Absolutely. Whereas so many of us are just like, I'm quoting my resume and I don't know why I'm here and goodbye. And then we just get forgotten in the milieu, you know? Yeah, the humanity. You learn the strategy of the search, but then you eliminate the, the originality from it by not being honest about who you are. Uh, and I think a lot of times, folks, the one thing that the creatives have that the nine to fivers don't 
is the hustle, mm. the desperation to keep going, right? So if you've got a nine to five with a salary, there's something about the work that you do that allows you to check out at the end of the day. And sometimes that's really necessary and healthy. And in other ways, it means that then you're not looking to remain active after hours, which means that maybe you're not pouring your time into being creative um, because you're like, well, time to watch Netflix, right? Which Netflix yeah. is fine. Um, but if that's the only way that you're investing your your out of hour out of office time, um, then you're really not thinking about developing who you are outside of that job. And once you lose that job, eventually you will. Um, either you're going to move on to another job, you know, and maybe that job has a different uh, a different task or a different time requirement for you. Um, who are you outside of that space? Um, and so I think a lot of times what creatives bring to the table is the fact that they need to remain relevant mm. um, for themselves, right? That your work, a lot of times as a creative, your work is coming from your personal development. If you're not making personal development, you're probably not making work because work generates from ideas and ideas come from vulnerability and from creativity. And so in order to sustain yourself as a creative, if you want to be a songwriter, but you refuse to be in a relationship for 10 years, how are you going to write that heartbreak song, right? Like you got to put yourself out there. You've got to be active and looking to invest yourself into the life that you're living so that you can sustain the career that you've chosen. And um, that's the difference with creatives is that you're dependent upon yourself to keep that going in a way that if you're getting that salary from another entity, they're not asking you to remain present in that way because they don't need you to do that in order to do your job. And so that becomes your responsibility. And and um, it can be really fun if you embrace it as an opportunity instead of a challenge. That's awesome. Um, it's really making me think about like how as we approach all this stuff and and even the the whole point about staying relevant, that that's that's in, incredibly it's built into the creative professions, but it's seeping into the more um, corporate professions as well. I was talking to someone recently and they had worked in data science or uh, web development for 40 years. But for 20 of those years, they were at the exact same company working on a proprietary software and didn't do any learning outside of that. Wow. And now they're 50 and they were laid off. Yeah. And they're freaking out about ageism. Yeah. And they're, and, and, you know, we can have a whole nother podcast on ageism, but, yeah. um, they're, they're sitting there and I said, what advice would you give to the younger folks in this, in this class who, you know, who are, who are coming up behind you? And he said, S never stop learning, never stop trying to push yourself to stay competitive because eventually you will get complacent and that complacent, and, and it's so easy to just go 10 years. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to go 10 yeah. years. And I, I think about that all the time now. Um, and it's, it's, it's really just and, and all right, so I, I want to, we're coming toward the end of the hour here. And I've got too many ideas going through my head, <laughs> but um, I want to do a quick sort of recap on my favorite, a few of my favorite points from today. There's so many favorites, but a few of my favorite points from today. And while I'm doing this recap, I want you to think about um, if you could go back to any age and you get to choose the age and give a younger version of yourself a piece of advice with this amazing career coaching and, and creative coaching uh, perspective that you have, what would it be? So I'm going to do my recap while you think. And uh, so tell me the age and tell me the piece of advice. And my favorite takeaways from our conversation today are number one, to network and nerd out in places that are not meant for job search networking. Number two, there's more to the job than just the job. Seek out lifestyles that you enjoy um, or the lifestyle around the job that's of interest. And I think Casey Neistat's probably a good um, indicator of this one because he always talks about in order to be a videographer, you have to have a life worth videoing mm. um, or a vlogger or whatever it is. Um, number three, you already have the tools you need, you need which I love your ethos on that. Uh, number five, four, Say yes and, and number five, don't hide your tattoos. Don't hide those tattoos. I love it. I love it. So if you could go back to any age, what age would it be? And what would you say to yourself? Yeah, I would go to um, 
to college. I would go to my, between my freshman and sophomore year. And I would tell myself to stop waiting for other people to give me permission to be what I want to be. I spent a lot of time trying to get approval from folks to say that I was good enough to do the thing, that I was good enough to be the actor, that I, um, that I was talented enough to be the director, that I was interesting enough to be on a radio show. Um, and at that time, I spent a lot of time trying to get into rooms where I saw people who had the confidence that I wanted. Um, and kept getting doors shut in my face. Um, and eventually I got to a place where I was so frustrated that I finally did what I wanted, but it took me three years of waiting and being frustrated that I wasn't being asked or invited to the party, to the, to the audition, to, you know, insert whatever it was. Um, and fortunately I always say that's the best thing that happened to me is, um, that's what turned me into other industries because I really looked at theater and I said, if you're not going to cast me as the ingenue because I'm six foot one and I'm taller than most of the men on stage, how am I going to have a career because of optics? <laughs> like I was really sitting there thinking about I'm paying money right now and I can't even get on a stage because of how tall I am. Oh, wow. Um and do I want a career that doesn't want me like that, you know? And, and I kept trying to get on that stage and I kept trying, you know, and I, and I thought that it was a reflection of my talent and skill until it got to a point where I said, I don't need you. I have other skills. I have other talents. And if you're not going to recognize that, then I'm going to go show other people. And once I started doing that and I really embraced that nature of saying, um, I don't need the, the permission slip to say I'm allowed to be here. I can just say I'm allowed to be here and that's enough. And once I started doing that, um, I started becoming the things I wanted to be. And that's how I left college um, with experience in broadcasting and television and theater and painting um, with a full resume that I knew was going to be marketable to a world no matter where I went, right? That it wasn't just going to be a resume full of plays that said, yes, I had played Juliet in Romeo and Juliet and look at me, I'm so great. Um, I can play the ingenue, you know, um, and that's it. Uh, I took that adversity and I was able to shape, um, honestly, a resume that has seen me to the jobs that I have now. I have never taken... Uh, that broadcasting off of my resume. I always keep PBS on my resume because they're parts of who I am that I'm really proud of. And although I don't want to continue going into broadcasting and television, um, those worlds are incredibly relevant and they continue to inform um, my time management skills. And, you know, like they never lose their relevancy. And they taught me a lot of lessons that um, I'm forever grateful for. I just wish that maybe uh, I had I had recognized that that was um, that that was possible a little bit earlier on. I love it, hey, Juliet. How can folks find you? You can find me on Instagram or at my website. They are both the same handle and the same name, so I'm going to spell it out for you. Uh, Juliet Barrett Coach dot com which is the website and on instagram it's the same handle but i'll spell it out it's j-u-l-i-e-t barrett b-a-r-r-e-t-t -T, coach no spaces um my instagram is a little bit more informal it's just an area where i like to share some tips and strategies for day-to-day -day, um time management um i go a little bit more in kind of the life coaching area where i talk about um some mental health aspects of developing your professionalism i like to share journal prompts just kind of some i some things that can get you going uh when you feel a little bit stuck in your day-to-day -day process Process, whether it's professional or creative. Um, and then my website is where you can book a session with me if you're interested or learn a little bit more about my practice. Um, although I think this is a really great way to do that. So now you, you have a little bit more of the behind the scenes, but you can find a little bit more about um, how I actually approach my practice as a coach professionally. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much. We'll be linking to all those great things in the description as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Juliet. Thank this has been a wonderful conversation. Yeah, it has. I'm, it's been such a joy. Thank you again for joining us. I hope you have a wonderful weekend and uh, all the best to you. I'll talk soon. Hey there, listeners. Thanks for hanging out to the end of the episode here. Martin back with a quick request for you. If you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to head over to our Patreon page and support what we're doing here at Career Therapy. Our entire goal with the content that we create is to help people build confidence in their careers and land jobs that are a great fit. If you join our Patreon for just the price of a cappuccino, a cup of coffee once per month, you can get access to direct message coaching, live streams, the podcast, and even some exclusive content. We have a couple other tiers that include group coaching and one-on-one coaching as well, if you're interested in those things. But I just wanted to say thank you for listening. For those of you who are able to support the podcast in in other ways and, and maybe become a financial contributor here on Patreon, I very much appreciate you keeping the lights on here. And I hope that everything is going well in your career and your job search. I'll see you on the next episode.